0: Alright, so yeah, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 1 again today. We'll be zeroing in on verses 11 through 14 this morning. Before we dive in, um, it's been a good series so far. We're right in the middle of it. Um, We're in the middle of a six-week series, all of which is included in chapter 1 where we are Meditating on our identity in Christ. We all have at least several, if not many, identities. Uh, I myself wear many hats. Uh, I'm a son, a brother, an uncle, a husband, a father, a charge nurse, a housemate, a landlord, a pastor, a Seattleite, an American, a friend, a neighbor. A lot of hats, a lot of roles. I'm sure you can relate with just juggling all the different roles that we have. And I find worth in all of those identities and all of those hats that I wear, but if I don't daily secure myself to my identity with Christ, then all those other identities, whether they're just one of them or all of them combined, will crush me. So This series that we're in is so important because we're meditating on this identity that we've been given in Christ. It is God-given, unearned, and it's more important than all the hats you're currently wearing. So this is our third week studying one long Greek sentence. A 202-word sentence from the Apostle Paul who's the only one who could write such a sentence, um, where he blesses God for everything he has done for us in Christ. So we're, we're right in the middle of a Pauline worship session right now. So we, we need to acknowledge that, remember that. We're not just coming to a sterile uh, textbook. We're right in the middle of Paul's overflow of worship to God. And in Act 1... As we studied a few weeks ago in verses 3 through 6, Paul has blessed God the Father, who in eternity past predestined us for adoption as sons. And by sons, what he means is, in the ancient sense, the inheritor of the estate, the firstborn son. So truly, as Justin talked about, our origin story began long before we were born, and our identity of being loved by God supersedes any other identity that we have. So then in the second act, verse 7 through 10, we discovered that God's love for us, although it began in eternity past, it landed in time and space, in the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And this fact radically changes our status from condemned To forgiven, from slave to redeemed. And as Paul will later stretch it further, from dead to alive. So in Christ, we can now truly live. So now we are in the third act, verses 11 through 14, and we see not just eternity past and eternity future, but today. How can we be sure of all of these huge realities today? God says he has adopted us, but what does that look like right now? Maybe you feel like you've been abandoned by God. Is there anything in our passage today that might speak to that? Since it's our last week in this beautiful, long, amazing worship overflow blessing of Paul, Uh, I want to read it in its entirety. And then we'll dive into verses 11 through 14 specifically. So starting in Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. God, your word is so pure and beautiful. Lord, strip away all that we are holding and carrying and thinking about, and may we just bask in the glory of what you've done for us. Help us to be washed by your word this morning. Uh, help us to come out of our time in your word and into praise. Because that, that is all we can, that is all that this can result in, Lord, is praise. I pray that you'd speak by your word and your holy spirit this morning in Jesus name. Amen. So Paul says a variation of in Christ 11 times in these 12 verses. And he does not let up in verses 11 through 14. He says it four times in four verses. He says in ver- there in verse 11 in him that is in Christ We have obtained an inheritance. Our passage this morning begins and ends discussing our inheritance. And this is where I want to start because there's a little bit of grammar to wade through. But the cool thing is that on the other side of some tough uh, grammar is a beautiful reality that has struck me the most as I've studied this passage. This word in verse 11 that the ESV, which is the one I read this morning, translates, we have obtained an inheritance, this word is only used one time, this time, in the entire New Testament. So because of that, it's hard to be quite certain how exactly to translate it. If you have the NIV, you will have read, in him we were also chosen. Or the CSB has a footnote that reads, in him we are also an inheritance. So it's a bit confusing. Which is it? All the commentators basically say we can't be exactly sure what Paul is meaning here, whether he's speaking to the inheritance we have, that we have obtained, or if he's speaking about God having made us his own inheritance. And then fast forward to verse 14. And we have a similar conundrum. The ESV translates that verse, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. But there's a footnote that reads, until God redeems his possession. Again, begging the question, in verses 11 and 14, is Paul emphasizing the inheritance that we are coming into as adopted sons and co-heirs with Christ? Or is he emphasizing the fact that God has chosen us as his own possession and plans to redeem that possession for his own on that day? The great thing is we don't really have to come to a final decision on this point because the entire Bible attests to both. Peter who writes a similar worship-filled blessing in the first chapter of 1 Peter. He writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So that word inheritance is the same word for inheritance used in Ephesians 1 verse 14 here where the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. So we can be assured that we do have an inheritance waiting for us on that day. But Peter goes on to describe our identity as the people of God in chapter 2 of 1 Peter. He writes, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, A holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And that word possession that Peter uses is the same word for acquiring possession that we read again in verse 14 until we acquire possession of it. So we are indeed God's chosen possession. He wanted us. Paul even alludes to this later in this chapter, chapter 1. If you look forward to verse 18, he says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches, listen here, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? We're not the only ones who have an inheritance here. We are God's inheritance that he has chosen. And this is so beautiful because it harkens back all the way to the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 4, uh, Moses writes, But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. So all of this is to say it's both. And that's how it was supposed to work. You know, God told Israel way back in the day, "I will be your God and you shall be my people." This is the story that God has been authoring from eternity past to eternity future. This is the story that we find ourselves in from the very beginning. Verse 11 has no less than 3 hammering statements of God having orchestrated this entire thing. We've been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And no, Paul does not elaborate here or elsewhere on the logical question of whether the reverse applies to those who do not believe. The bottom line is that God has been making a way to be with people. And in Christ, it's done. He did it. And because of Christ, there will never be a day that we are without God's presence. And that was his goal the entire time. Okay, that was a little bit of grammar. We're going to do a teeny bit more because we have to talk a little bit about pronouns this morning. Because if we're not careful, we could miss it. So this entire blessing that Paul has been giving to God, he has been using the universal we and the universal us when referring to the human objects of God's actions in the world. If you take a look at verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 4, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we and that us, that is all Christians. Universal. But now, Paul starts differentiating a bit. In verse 11, we have another universal we, when he says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. But, then in verse 12, notice he starts qualifying things. He qualifies the we in verse 12 as those who first hoped in Christ. And he goes further. In verse 13, he says, he, he differentiates between who he's talking about more fully when he says, you also, when you heard it. And then he completes the entire blessing with another universal hour. He is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So what is going on here? What is going on with who Paul is talking to and about is it all of us? Is it Who is he starting to kind of differentiate between? So this is actually a, a continuation of something that has already come up, although briefly, and will be a major theme in this entire letter. If you, if you look back just a little bit at verses 9 and 10, Paul says, Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, here it is, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The primary things on earth that are to be united are people. Well, for Paul, here in verses 11 through 14, it's Jews and Gentiles. That cosmic reconciliation that Christ accomplished is a major theme in this entire letter. And we'll we'll hit it over and over again. And one of the primary proofs that Christ has brought together Jew and Gentile, or excuse me, one of the primary proofs of that reconciliation being accomplished is that he has brought together Jew and Gentile under the same covenant. Listen to Paul's words And chapter 2, verses 12 to 14, he says, Remember that you, Gentiles, were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Yikes. But then he says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near... By the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He goes on in chapter 3, verse 6 This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And as Paul uh, transitions from the first half of the letter into the second half of the letter in chapter 4 where he gives a lot more imperatives. He says, I therefore, in verse 1 of chapter 4, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So, for Paul, Jew and Gentile, and for us, Christian unity, it has been accomplished. And is something not to strive for, not to build, not to pursue, but to maintain because it's already been purchased. So, getting back, getting back to verses 11 through 14, I want us to invo- in to observe, excuse me, three realities First, we have found our people. Second, we already have the promise. And third, we are now waiting for our possession. People promise possession. When Harry Potter finishes his first term as an 11-year-old first-year student at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, he and his friends... Ron and Hermione are boarding the Hogwarts Express, heading back to London, and his new friend, Hermione Granger, comments, isn't it strange to be going home? (laughs) And Harry Harry responds with, I'm not going home. Not really. And that is exactly what we have. Harry, you know, he he had a rough childhood. Uh, His parents died when he was like one. Uh, He's brought up by his aunt and uncle who are not uh, sympathetic with those who are uh, magical people. Um, And it was only when he arrived at Hogwarts did he find true friendship and family in his new community. And we, like Justin said, this is not a, a Jesus and me thing. When we have been redeemed when we have been transformed brought from darkness into light and when we look around we need to realize that we're not the only ones that we have been adopted in Christ with one another we found our people Anna and I like to tell our daughters they're two and a half years apart that they should treat each other with respect because one you are each other's best friend. We're just trying to force it. You know? you're, the, you're each other's best friend. It's a fact. And two, you're going to be sisters your whole life, so you better get used to each other. We hope that we can encourage them towards pursuing a sisterly loving relationship. But with other Christians, the stakes are even higher. You're going to spend eternity with these people, so you best get used to them now. And the cool thing about Christian unity is that it's already been purchased. The dividing wall of hostility has been destroyed in Jesus' flesh. You know, he prayed, like Justin said, I think he said that, uh, for Christian unity before he died. And I find that amazing. And it saddens me because we look around and we don't see it, it's, it's sad. <laughs> but I'm encouraged because I know that when that day does come, every single person who is submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ will be fully unified. There will no, no longer be any disunity, dissensions. It was Chris that prayed for that. And it's cool because just like we get in the Holy Spirit a foretaste, uh, a down payment of our future inheritance, we can also experience a foretaste of unity. You know, we we shouldn't be surprised or shocked or disillusioned when we don't see it fully realized right now because we don't see the kingdom of God fully realized yet. But we should expect a foretaste you know we should expect to taste what it's like to be fully unified with Christ and his people as a as a nurse i encounter people all the time all different walks many a time christian uh and over the last decade as i've worked in the the medical field and and met and experienced christians of all walks uh from, you know, Catholic to Protestant to mainline to non-denominational to what have you, I think one of the the biggest things that has stuck out to me is that foretaste of Christian unity. Because when you meet someone and you, you find out they're a believer in Jesus, you can really tell if Jesus is the most important thing in their life. And you can also tell when he's not. But when he is, boom, that moment is a foretaste of the unity that Christ has already purchased. But it involves people who have fully submitted themselves to the lordship of Christ. So if you want Christian unity, draw nearer to Jesus. Because in drawing nearer to him and submitting yourself entirely under his lordship, you'll find you are unified with everyone who has done the same. So we can have a foretaste of that. So we found our people, and we have the promise. There in verse 14, or sorry, uh, 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. I love that Paul uses the word promise here. He says the promised Holy Spirit. Because in doing so, you know, he is talking to Gentiles. He is talking to a non-Jewish audience and he's then hearkening back to the promises made way back in ancient Israel to the Old Testament and showing that we Gentiles get to partake in these same promises that were made to them. Listen to the words of The prophet Ezekiel, he says, And I will give you, this is God speaking, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And the prophet Joel adds to this, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. The Gentiles receiving the Holy Spirit, this was a mic drop moment in the history of the church. You know, when Peter gives his testimony uh, of observing a Roman centurion, Cornelius, and his whole family receiving the gospel one, but after that receiving the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues that they did not know, prophesying, extolling God. Acts 11:18 says, his Jewish Christian audience fell silent. They were just like, what? The Gentiles get this too? That's crazy. And this caused no, no minor, you know, issues in the early church. There were many Jewish Christians that did not like this. And they fought to keep the Gentiles out, at least until they converted to Judaism. But thank God that he had other plans. So how did the Gentiles receive the promise? Verse 13, Paul says, When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. So Paul uses word of truth here to describe the gospel. And he does this a couple other times uh, throughout his letters in the New Testament. You know, Paul has a very high uh, view and, um, yeah, a high view of the entirety of Scripture. You know, if you read 2 Timothy 3 uh, 16, 17, he says, All Scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching and all these things. But he especially considers powerful the simple gospel. You know, he speaks in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, as we see in verse 12, and also to the Greek. You know, it is the hearing of the gospel of Christ and the belief in that same gospel that for Paul unleashes the promised Holy Spirit to anyone if you have heard and believed the gospel that is if you believe this statement Christ died to save sinners of whom I am chief if you if you believe that you have been sealed with the promised holy spirit paul speaks of the holy spirit in two ways here first as a seal you know, a seal in ancient times indicates ownership. A landowner would put his seal or brand you know, on his property, including livestock or, or just any possession or even uh, a servant, indicating ownership and protection. Uh, another thought that came up while we were studying this passage in our home group this week is that a seal was also what kings would use to ratify new Proclamations, new laws. You know, the moment a king's seal was on a given declaration, it could not be undone. And in the Holy Spirit, we are marked as God's permanent and protected possession. So, first, as a seal. But Paul also speaks of the Holy Spirit here in verse 14 as the guarantee of our inheritance. And there are multiple other words, and perhaps your version has a footnote. Mine has a footnote that says, or down payment. Or another word that could be used is earnest. If you've ever purchased a home, you know you're supposed to put down earnest money, which basically means you're serious. And if you back out, you're in trouble. Another word that could be used is foretaste. The key to understand the key is to understand that because we have been given the Holy Spirit and if you are in Christ, you have then you know that God is both serious about this transaction and that there is more to come. The Holy Spirit in our daily lives cons- convinces of sorry, the Holy Spirit in our daily lives convinces us of both of these truths. That we are God's chosen and treasured possession and that God is our inheritance. It's both. He is ours, and we are his. And yes, the Holy Spirit empowers us also for the purpose of glorifying Jesus Christ through gifts, through teaching, through all the the gifts that we read about in in 1 Peter 4, uh, Ephesians 4, and we'll get to that. Uh, Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 but he does so much more than that you know he convicts us of sin in the only way that he can not with condemnation but with the only way that he can a, a joyful realization that the way we're going is not helpful that's how he does it he also enables us to draw so close to god that we can call him, as little Jewish kids would call their dad, Abba. It depends on your experience with a father, how comfortable you are with using language like that. But the Holy Spirit is the one who can empower and enable you to feel and be so close to God that that is your, that's just what comes out. The Holy Spirit is a foretaste of God's end game of intimacy with his people. And he mentions the Holy Spirit every single chapter from here on out. So we'll continue to build on what it means to be a community of believers indwelt by the Spirit. So we are a people. We have the promise. And we are awaiting our possession. Verse 14 there. Until. ah, oh, that's the worst word because it means it's not yet, right? That is our eternity future. We've, we've been taken off the streets and we've been told that we are to inherit. I have a confession. I've been watching Downton Abbey lately. It might be our third time through. I know. A lot of the plot line to that story has to do with being an heir. The Crawley family finds out in the first episode of the first season that the beloved heir that they thought would inherit the entire Grantham estate and Down Abbey itself tragically went down with the Titanic. So the estate is then to be inherited by a previously unknown and distant cousin. Oh! And he was the heir on paper, but at least initially, he wasn't the heir by experience. God isn't just making us inheritors on paper. He is making us inheritors and heirs so that he can draw nearer and nearer to us every day until that day when we acquire possession of it or, if you look at the footnote, until he redeems his own possession. If you're not a Christian today, please understand that this is the God of Christianity. This is not a God that says, here's a list of what you must do, here's how you are to behave, and if you can't do all these things, then forget it. That is not the God of Christianity. The God of Christianity is a God who has done it all, simply so that he can be close to us. So that's what you're saying no to, if you say no to that God. And just like the first Jewish Christians who tasted this for themselves could say in verse 12, to the praise of his glory, we Gentiles can join the chorus and also proclaim that all of this is to the praise of his glory. Let's join together and praise this amazing God. Let's pray. Father, we've reached the end of Paul's